him and I guess Nokia, they've they've not really wanted to get involved in these uh, geopolitical discussions. I think they'd rather just talk about the technology and the business, and so it's an awkward question for them. But they've been, you know, Ericsson's been very very quiet while. Um, you know, the US has been sort of running around urging bans on Huawei and, and, and didn't, as far as I'm aware, have very much to say at all when the UK moved to uh, introduce its ban or when, you know, or when France did similar things or when, when you know, Australia said we're not having any Huawei in our 5G network a couple of years ago. Didn't have a lot to say. I mean, clearly it's, it's massively in Ericsson's interest to have no Huawei in these markets because it's a huge opportunity for it to come in and replace the company. And you know, at a time when there's not a lot of growth left in the market, that's that's the only way in their main addressable market they're going to boost revenue. So, hello and welcome to the first telecoms.com podcast of 2021. As you will notice, we're not in the studio. We valiantly went into the studio. I think half the time we came in, we weren't even supposed to. Because like yeah. the office was closed and they were saying work say that. if you can, but yeah, well, it's all right. We've done it now, <laughs> um, but we did because we're that committed. But this time we're on like lockdown level four hundred. Everything's closed. Uh, I couldn't come in anyway because I only got back from the Canary Islands on the third of January, and I've got to be on quarantine till the fourteenth. Oh um, god! But even when even when my quarantine's over. I've got a feeling we're going to be doing these for a little while. I mean, they reckon this super-duper lockdown's probably going to be a couple of months, don't they? Yeah. They said until March. They said mid-February now. It's like, well, maybe yeah. until March. I think yeah. mid-February is the goal for um, vaccinating everybody who's over 70. Well, I, I'll tell you what, takes, I'm going to... It takes two or three weeks to take effect, so... Before mm. before we get stuck into that, because I, I quite fancy chatting about a few sort of current affairs-y things. Um, but Pierre, who's the only grown-up in the room, insists that I talk about telecom stuff first so that people don't tune in and just go, what's this? <laughs> I could listen to any people moaning about the news. So I think he does have a point, to be fair. So I'll concede that point, but I'm still going to have – we'll still get to scratch that current affairs itch at the end, Ian. Yep. So, um, so there's that. So um, what we are going to talk about – we're going to start off by talking about the good old US versus China stuff. Been a few bits of news at the start of the year, a few developments on on that front. Uh, then we're going to move into a sort of UK thing. There's a story in pre- today, pretty much, I think, um, about how we're not doing very well at rolling out fibre, which surprises nobody. Um, and then we're going to finish off with moaning. Maybe you can call it moaning on the captions, Pierre. Yeah, um, Scott's moaning. <laughs> oh, oh, Ian will moan. Don't you worry okay, about okay. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, And then, yeah, so just to remind you that if you're watching this on the site or on YouTube or on Facebook, you can listen to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, and loads of other podcasting platforms. Now, Pierre, before oh, uh, we get stuck in, did you have some yes, producer um, stuff? The shout-out of the, the city of the month, which is uh, – Brugge or Bruges uh, in Belgium. Uh, And a close second is Fresno in California. I have a feeling Fresno (laughs) Fresno is like people who used to live in San Jose but moved out (laughs) to a cheaper place. (laughs) It's probably that. I wonder why they listen to us in Bruges. Yeah, Yeah, Bruges is an odd one. 
It's not exactly mm. a tech tech hub, is it? Have you ever seen the film In Bruges? I have. Yes. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? I quite like it. Yeah, the good. jump is still haunts me to this day. Oof. Oh yeah, and it's also yeah. where Doctor Evil alert. was raised. Doctor ah. Evil from the Austin Powers films is raised in Bruges, <laughs> and I, that's I remember, where they made him so freaking evil. Uh, Ralph Fiennes or, or Rafe Fiennes or whatever being particularly good in In Bruges. Yeah, yeah. it's a baddie. Bad. You're an animate object. Do, doing a <laughs> his Cockney axe is brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, he's quality that bloke. Uh, okay, well, thanks, Bruges, and thanks, Fresno. I can't think of anything quirky or fun to say about Fresno. That's uh, probably a song with Fresno in it. I, yeah, some yeah. sort of 60s, like, sort of Beach yeah. Boys song or something. And get Fresno <laughs> to go on a beach and chill out and get a tan. Something Fresno like is inland, though. These oh, days, it? it's just full of people from Facebook, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right. Um so yeah, the China stuff. There's a few things that I think we're going to stitch together. I'm going to start with just pure US-China aggro. Um, the sort of funny one at the start of the week was this thing about the New York Stock Exchange delisting China Mobile, China Telecom, China Unicom. And they were going to delist them because one of Trump's many um, executive orders Basically, what he's been doing is coming up with these executive orders, each of which incrementally say no one in the US can do any business with anyone in China. But he can't just come out and say it. and just like, we're cutting China off. We're building a wall in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's that. Um, although that would be an impressive achievement, even for the supposed wall builder, Trump. Um, he has to just cut off little bits, all these little digs at Huawei, and then, and then you can't they can't buy chips and all that sort of thing. And his latest one is that they <clears throat> that these um, Chinese telcos can't be listed on New York Stock Exchange because then they're because then they're getting American money to support Chinese nefarious stuff. It's so tenuous. Anyway, so on top of that being tenuous, they sort of went, "Yeah, all right, then we better delist them." And then someone else had a little word, going, "Nah, nah, don't worry about it." Maybe it was someone from the incoming Biden administration. So then they came out with another announcement the day later. So the first announcement was like New Year's Eve, I think. Second announcement was last Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, they went, oh, someone else has had a word. And now we are delisting them again. It's completely farcical. Um, and to be honest, I think the New York Stock Exchange only deserves a relatively small amount of the blame because they're clearly just being buffeted by all this political dicking about. Was it, was that your take on it, Ian? Yeah, I'm just wondering what the chances are of them uh, getting listed again. Oh, yeah, uh, once Biden's properly in place. Yeah, we've, we've obviously got a change in administration coming, and it, and it seems very much as though, I mean, I imagine this normally happens, but there's a rush to get through bits of legislation that you, you know, the sort of to-do list uh, suddenly become yeah. more urgent in those last few weeks. Um you know, especially if you if you've if you've perhaps thought that you weren't going to be leaving the White House anyway, as this as this guy did. Uh, yeah. So, so you kind of wonder when Biden does get in, what what does change? And you know, there's been a lot of speculation anyway about his China policy and what he's going to do. I suppose as regards Huawei and ZTE and you know the other companies that we've been talking about for years now. Um, so I, I, it's just yeah, it's really bizarre, but um, it's just sort of metastasizing. So yeah, it's and, it's, and it's an odd one. The, the financial side of it's a bit weird, you know, in, in a way, I think, this, this delisting. and the, Because you start to think, you know, if, if they're going to that extent, then, 
you know, there's the whole issue of intellectual property and and the fact that companies, you know, like Huawei and Ericsson, you know, Cisco, sit together in a lot of the same forums and, you know, yeah. there's collaboration that goes on between them. So, you know, if we don't want um, China Telecom and China Unicom listed in, on the NYSE, then do we, you know, do we start to think about some of these standards bodies? Is that is that going too far as far as some of the US hawks are concerned? And you know what, yeah. what? What other companies don't we want on the stock exchange as well? Because there's there's obviously well, quite you know there's and, groups, and, there's, groups, there's big Russian there's big Russian companies that raise capital in that way. So yeah, no one's ever banned them, even when no. at the height of the Cold War. Exactly. Although maybe they did. I don't know. I I, I, well, I don't know about them, but some companies like Vion, for instance, which is headquartered in Amsterdam, but is basically a Russian, properly Russian, mainly Russian operator. Most of its revenues are in that market. You know, they, they, they're listed on the NYSE. And, well, uh, and and even more broadly than that, there is the issue, and um, Phil, your editor, commented on, on one of my stories, and I've chatted to him subsequently. There's the issue of the US poking its, the US government poking its nose into what private companies get up to and telling them who they can do business with. Now, not only is that dodgy full stop, but it's also completely hypocritical because the main problem the us and its allies have with huawei is that they feel it's beholden to the chinese state and then the way the way they're acting against it is to make us companies beholden to the us state by putting these increasing regulations telling them what to do just completely bloody hypocritical it's it's more of that if you can't beat them join them and i think they sacrifice they sacrifice all their moral High they do. when they do well that. even with suggestions which have come out in the past about you know the US government maybe taking a, a majority stake in Ericsson or Nokia um you know or or pumping huge amounts of money into new technology like Oran you know how how can they how can one of the criticisms be about state aid and unfair Chinese government involvement when they're proposing things like that it's just yeah. it's, it's so ludicrous it really is it is and you know it's not like the US is saying they don't spy on China. It's not like anyone's saying they don't spy on everything they can get a chance. You remember there was that time a few years ago when some bug was found in Angela Merkel's soup or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's spying on each other. It's just it's just what you do. And every now and then you get caught and they have to sort of go, oh, it was a rogue agent and whatever the standard bullshit is. Um, so I it's it's increasingly hard to prize them apart. I mean, that's notwithstanding some of the extra sinister stuff that the Chinese get up to. Yeah, about, I was thinking about Hong Kong and Xinjiang and all that sort of thing. Well, I always think that's the way that's the way to to pursue this campaign, in, in my opinion, really. I've always found the security one and the spying one is is always a bit and I know that's the reason that a lot of European governments perhaps have now moved to restrict Huawei or say that, you know, they can't have Chinese equipment in their networks in the future. But for me, it should really, you know, in a way, I think it should be less about security and more about um, ethics in a way, I suppose. You know, do we really want to be, you know, at a time when the Chinese government is becoming a lot more aggressive and we see what's happening in Hong Kong, you know, do we really want to be, spending money, um, you know, especially given all the accusations. Now, I know there's never been a smoking gun, but there have been court cases, you know, dating back to 2003 about intellectual property theft. Yeah. Uh, there have been numerous allegations about, you know, Iran, obviously. We've got that whole affair going on. 
Um, you know, there's been the, the suggestion that they receive, you know, all this money from the Chinese government and therefore they're able to compete unfairly. I almost think those are better ways of pressing the case than this whole security issue, which, you know, as you say, everybody everybody kind of does that anyway. Yeah. And the, the US has already been shown to be doing it quite recently with with its allies, with the whole Angela Merkel thing and Edward Snowden. Yeah. So, yeah, the only problem the only problem with the ethics angle there was a little bit of outcry recently like immediately after um the the Brexit thing finally got done and dusted. Um Europe signed some big trade deal with China. And lots of you know lots of people on my side of the fence, i.e. the people who were pro Brexit, were like, were suddenly huffing and puffing that Europe does this and I was thinking well two things firstly you know, the whole point of Brexit was for us to have the autonomy to sign deals with whoever we want. So who the hell are we doing moralising about what Europe does anymore? Yeah, no, I, um, I didn't mean ethics in that way, perhaps. I meant more... No, no, but let me, let me finish. The, the, yeah. the, the point I'm making is that I, I think ethics in a geopolitical way are, are quite hard to pin down. You know, we do business, we do business with all sorts of dodgy places, ethically, like Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, and so I just think it's a, it's a hard hill to die on in terms of geopolitics to talk about ethics because it's just so slippery, that's all. It is, but there's some egregious cases, aren't there? I mean, the, the yeah. Saudi Arabia one, I mean, we wouldn't have bought, uh, we wouldn't have been buying munitions off Germany in the 1930s, would we? I guess not. And, but, and, you know, and, Saudi Arabia goes and chops up a journalist and it doesn't sort of really... Do it, anything, it does, but, but I guess, you know, the the... the Saudi Arabia and China on the on the world stage, and in terms of the threat they pose to the world order, I think are very different things. Um, yeah. So. So. Yeah. Okay. You know, so it's, so, it's so a sort that, of combination one, of considerations. But I think that ethics is the wrong word for it. Maybe I just think maybe on the sort of fair competition grounds, you know, the, the fact yeah. that you know Western companies can't get a fair shot in China, why should we give them a fair shot over here? If they don't want to play by WTO OTO rules, you know, if, if, if if Ericsson can only get 10% of the Chinese telecom market and Nokia can't get anything at all, mobile infrastructure, I mean, then why why should we allow them to... Yeah, no, that, there I've got no, I've got no you argument know, with you. And, and, and this Cold War, if, it in, if indeed it is a Cold War, is distinctive in that China is a far greater, greater economic power than Russia and the Eastern Bloc, even the yeah. whole Eastern Bloc were. Um, so this Cold War is bound to be far more characterised by trade and commercial matters, whereas yeah. the previous one was more proper, like sort of espionage and arms race and all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Also, China has has seems to have very limited, like geographical expansionist ambitions, uh, short of like Taiwan and Hong Kong and that well, sort well, of it, thing. Yeah, it has up it has up to now, but. It's yeah, been, you never know. It's, it's certainly been notably more aggressive in in the areas where it it does sort of see uh, a a, ge, a ge, you know sort of geographical uh, expansion yeah. opportunity, if you like, than it than it ever has been in the in the past 10, 15 years. I think it's the stuff that's going on in Hong Kong at the moment, the stuff that's going on on the Indian border, the stuff that's going on in the South China Sea. From what you read, anyway, in newspapers, it sounds like it's really sort of ramped up in the last sort of two three years. So. It's, well, uh, that, that is another that is another point. You know, if we start thinking about hot war, which we've we've never really thought about proper war involving superpowers, except for like superpowers steaming into somewhere s- small in the 
usually doomed attempt to sort them out. Um, but we've we haven't thought about superpower versus superpower war almost since the Second World War. Um, and I suppose you know, this is a bit of a tangent, and I'll, I'll get it back onto vaguely telecomsy stuff in a sec. But you know, China is flanked by by Russia at the north, um, India at the southwest, uh, Indonesia and Australasia at the southeast. So I guess its its potential for just going and invading places is relatively small. Not that it's shown any inclination. Yeah. Yeah. And then what if it steams into Taiwan? Then it, that's just going to kick right off. Well, that, that that would be the flashpoint, yeah, because there'd be an expectation mm. then. I mean, the US has always had this sort of commitment to, I think it's always had this commitment anyway to kind of defend Taiwan, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Taiwan's been- the, the Belgium of this era. It, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's the, um, you know, if they fail to do anything, then it would sort of uh, be a massive climb down in their position. And it would be like not responding to an attack on a NATO country, wouldn't it, really? Yeah. Think so. Um, so yeah. Um, so that's all a bit tasty. Um, steering it back onto tele- on the sort of tech sector, telecomsy stuff. Um, the other one, in fact, this was our I think our most read story of the week was one I wrote saying US follows India's lead in banning Chinese mobile payment apps. Um, so India's been banning Chinese apps. Uh, it's banned like hundreds of them so far. And now the US, uh, again, this is a, uh, I think, a Trump executive order thing. They're banning, like, two of the big ones are Alipay, which is Alibaba's payment one, and and WePay, which is the payment um, aspect of WeChat, which is owned by Tencent, which are pretty much the two biggest Chinese companies, to the best of my knowledge. So that's just yet another front. And, I mean, I... I'd need to click on the story and remind myself why, but I seem to remember the rationale again was quite tenuous. It was like, well, you know, they might get some data. If Americans use it, they might get some data on them and that might be used for spying or something like that. It's just really weak justifications. Um, but then again, they could argue that loads of like US uh, apps are banned in China. So they could argue they're just catching up, couldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what does happen when Biden takes over, actually, on, in terms of things like this, because I, I suspect not all that much will change in terms of, you know, the big companies like Huawei and, and, the, and the kind of campaign that's happened there. It's not as though Biden coming in is, is really going to change the story for Huawei. No, it would be politically awkward for him to suddenly reverse course, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would, and it would be politically awkward for, um, you know, I mean, the, the UK, there's long been the suspicion that they just basically caved in eventually to US pressure to impose a full ban right um you know they yes they, that was certainly our impression this, wasn't it yeah they tried to do this 35 percent um you know limits and then and then they, they kind of got hassled a bit more and eventually went oh okay then let's just ban them entirely now you've got a change administration happening and i think huawei it seems to have got its hopes up last year that you know maybe biden coming in would be a way for them to get back into the uk and i just i don't see any chance of that happening at all really and i don't think biden's necessarily going to be very soft on 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 them. I just think he'll. I think this sort of tit for tat stuff that's going on. You know, the kind of banning of, of, of fairly small apps and and you know the NYSE stuff. And I think maybe that will stop happening. You know, and he'll try and do things in a in a slightly more conciliatory way. I, I guess maybe a more, yeah, or a more behind the scenes, more behind the scenes, and, and old school trying to sort of build alliance with with other countries rather than. Yeah, or, or if you don't do what we're telling you, then we're not going to sell you any any planes next year. Kind of, 
Yes. Okay. Uh, yes, and I think you know now that Trump is officially out of it, and I think you know we may well touch on on some of the drama this week later on in the in the sort of any other business section. Um, that his, uh, to some extent, there's a sort of full stop on his legacy. There's like a clean break. Um, I think I still think it's fair to look back on on his period, eccentric, bizarre unique though it was i think the china stuff i can't imagine any regular politician sort of changing the trajectory with respect to china in the way that he did uh i mean it's very hit and miss there's lots of random stuff lots of very counterproductive stuff but i think the softly softly approach just plays straight into their strength and i'm talking about i'm talking specifically about xi jinping and the chinese communist party not china on the whole but their political yeah. strength, which is just to do stuff on the sly, to say, yeah, 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 we'll do that, and then do something different. They just well, sort of play everyone. And, and and I think it took it took someone as brutish as Trump to to sort of shake things up well, a bit. Maybe maybe he's done it. I mean, maybe history will remember him a bit differently because he's he's kind of done a favor, you know, for his successes in a way, because he's you know, they're they're, they're probably not gonna go about things in the same way that he does. Yeah, they'll they'll be more diplomatic, but at the same time, he's created. You know, he's because he's changed the conversation so much. It gives them an opportunity to kind of come in and, and be reasonably tough. He's already been. And yeah. now is an improvement on what he's done as far as China's concerned. Yeah, if it's looking for someone to negotiate with and talk to, and maybe some kind of opportunity, then anything's an improvement almost. Yeah, so but he's changed quite, the trajectory. But he's changed and the trajectory. I think for so that, we should be grateful. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that's one. Area. I mean, you know, this, his legacy is going to be very mixed. I think, um, you know, he's he's not the economy's done pretty well under him. Um, he's not he's not taken the he's not taking the world into war, which I think a lot of his critics expected him to do. Um, yes, and he's turned out not to be a fascist. He's turned out not to be a fascist. For God's sake. I think, think polarisation has got worse during his. Uh, presidency, not in, not yeah, ju- not just because of him, but he's certainly not helped that. Uh, yeah. He's been a part of that, and, and that's a very sad thing, I think, because that's that's probably the worst thing there is at the moment in in US politics is this inability to kind of find any middle ground at all, <laughs> um, yeah. or just offer even a single conciliatory syllable to each other. Well, and it's yeah. it's not even just politicians; it's just ordinary people. I mean, people that you and I know that we're not going to mention now. I tend to yeah. you talk to Americans; they're all very much sort of one way or the other. There's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of nuance. They're they're very much kind of picked aside, you know. And you do see that totally. okay as well these days. Actually, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in other parts. Yeah, so yeah. Well, look, it's in the US. Mate, you're, you're talking to someone who who who's openly admitted to voting Leave for the past four years. I yeah. know, I know all about yeah, yeah. polarisation, and, and that's the best example of it in in the UK. Obviously, is the whole Brexit debate, which has been massively polarising and has been a classic example of people not not able to see the other side of the argument at all. Yeah, most people. Uh, but it, it just seems to be so much worse in the US, and I think that's got worse under him. And so, yeah, yeah. I guess he's going to be bringing it back to telecom. And I think on the China thing, I think yeah, I think it's actually good because something I personally think something probably did need to be done about about China. And and you know, if we're trying to look at it from an industry perspective, you know, the last ten year, last ten, twelve, fifteen years, whatever it's been, that Huawei has slowly been rising up the agenda and has become this sort of all powerful thing and a very dominant force in the industry. That's not been good. That's not a healthy state of affairs for the industry to have this super powerful, 
vendor, which is, you know, let's be honest, the fact that it's come along and been so price competitive and whatever it's allowed has allowed it to do that, that's generated a huge amount of consolidation in the industry. We're now in this situation where operators are complaining about not having choice. You know, we've got a, a desire to try and get, you know, new technologies out quickly. It's not it's not the most healthy environment. So no. I think it I think it needed looking at and, and it fits into this kind of China narrative. And and so I think his his legacy in that area is probably more positive than perhaps yeah. the other. So there's a uh, there's another side to that coin, which is Western companies that want to do business in China and not fall foul of collateral damage from all this tit for tat bullshit that's flying around. So I'll hand it over to you. We've both written about this, but I know you wrote a more sort yeah. of opin- opinion driven piece on yeah. on Boya Ekholm, the the CEO of Ericsson, continues to berate his own country sweden for banning huawei so why don't you take it from yeah there? i mean it's uh you know he they've him and i guess nokia they've they've not really wanted to get involved in these uh geopolitical discussions i think they'd rather just talk about the technology and the business and so it's an awkward question for them but they've been you know ericsson's been very very quiet while um you know, the US has been sort of running around urging bans on Huawei and, and, and didn't, as far as I'm aware, have very much to say at all when the UK moved to uh, introduce its ban or when, you know, or when France did similar things or when, when you know, Australia said we're not having any Huawei in our 5G network a couple of years ago. Didn't have a lot to say. I mean, clearly it's, it's massively in Ericsson's interest to have no Huawei in these markets because it's a huge opportunity for it to come in and replace the company. And, you know, at a time when there's not a lot of growth left in the market, that's that's the only way in their main addressable market they're going to boost revenue. So, but all of a sudden, Sweden says it's going to do the same thing. You know, anybody who wins a 5G license can't use Huawei to build the network. And all of a sudden, Boy Ekholm is putting his hand up. Oh, no, we don't want this. This is not fair. Mm. This, is not what, this is not what free trade and global fairness is all about. Yeah. It's like, oh, and, hold on. How come you're suddenly and, so and, worried you know, about that? How are you so worried about I mean, it's and it's quite, you know... The, I think the, you made a point in your piece about how he wasn't piping up when it was happening in Australia. Well, ex- exactly. And, and, and he's put himself in a little bit of an awkward situation, I think, because the, the trouble is that anybody now... You know, could sit down with him and say, "Well, hang on a minute. If this is if this is how strongly you feel about the Swedish situation, then are you going to start lobbying the UK government to overturn the Huawei ban? And if not, mm. not. And and the reality is, they're not going to say it, but they're dead. They're desperately worried about what happens to their China business. Yeah. Um, you know, as as a Swedish company, they are obviously at risk of any Chinese retaliation to, uh, against against Sweden. Um, and they don't have a massive market share in China, but because it's such a massive market, you know, that, that with, even with their 10 or 11 percent or whatever it is, you know, you've got a country that I think it built about 700,000 5G base stations last year. There's, there's something like 600,000 planned this year. You look at their, I dug into their results again because I couldn't remember, but I dug into them this week. That China market grew, I think, in the third quarter, which is the last one they've reported for, by about 40 percent. It was like nearly all the... It's it's all the growth. And it's 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 yeah. a huge share of revenue as well. It's a tenth of, of, of Ericsson's... Yeah, because it's such a massive market. And it was only about 7% last... It's up three percentage points as a percentage of their, of yeah. their overall revenues. You can see... And a further indication of the... Sorry, of the size of the Chinese market is that Huawei grew last year in spite of everything. 
Yeah. So Huawei with 90%, well, not, it's not a 90% share, but Huawei and ZTE, I think, have, you know, 85 Between them, 88%. Between them. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, this is this is clearly why. You know, everybody looks at their results, Huawei's results, and goes, hang on a minute, aren't there all these sanctions? Aren't they getting bad? Yeah. And it's the answer why are they still doing reasonably well? And it's clear why they're doing well. When, when you've got a country that's building as many 5G base stations as the rest of the planet put together and then some. So... Mm. It's um, so it's uh, which, clear, it's clear why he's why he's worried about what could, yeah because totally growth story is based on China and unless they have that the trouble is that they've got they've got some other pressure points at the moment they've got this um, intellectual property issue I think with Samsung which they've said could wipe out some profits in the next uh, few quarters they've so got in North America yeah they've got very very slow growing markets in in. Um, in, in you know outside China, pretty much all of them, I think there's a bit of growth in North America, Europe, not doing very well during the whole coronavirus pandemic. You know, a lot, a lot of things have been delayed, so they they need you know any anything that's going to satisfy investors as a growth you know growth story is coming from China really, and therefore this this Swedish issue that suddenly cropped up is big. It's big for them, and it's yeah. in a pretty difficult situation. But it but it just raises some. It does raise some awkward questions for him, you know. If you, this is, and I think Huawei's already tried to get some capital out of this. This um, slightly sneaky fellow in Australia, Jeremy, I can't even remember his surname now, but he's the head of corporate communications for Huawei Australia. Was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald saying, "Hang on a minute, you know, if Ericsson's so keen on fair play in Sweden, why don't they come over here and start lobbying a bit on on our behalf?" Yeah, you know. Well, we well, it, be interesting. Exactly, I've got to say about that. And look. I mean, I don't, you know, we, we, we don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to understand what Ecom's vested interest is. Uh, and and we can't begrudge him it, but I do agree with you. I mean, the point I made when I wrote it up is he's already made this point, um, I, you know, a few months ago. Uh, let me, I've got it up here. I can click through. He did like, a, he did an interview with the FT or something. Yeah, yeah it was. Originally, originally interview the FT, FT on yeah. 18th of November. So he's already done that, and this one was this story was a leak to a Swedish paper about him apparently like texting or messaging a um, a Swedish politician about it. Well, well, that's so worse, that, isn't it? Because yes, it's exactly. Thing, it's and one it's, thing it's, saying it to the FT, but to actually be lobbying vigorously behind the scenes is is just like uh, yes, and and to a politician, and and the yeah. politician's public position is well, I'm not. This isn't any of my business. Is you know, this is with yeah. the authority. It's not for me to poke my nose in. So that doesn't reflect well on him. And then the fact that it leaked, I mean, Ericsson must have leaked it, as far as I'm concerned. From my my understanding of how leaking works, yeah. uh, very few leaks are, are a product of actual sort of signals and intelligence, i.e. someone hacking it. Yeah, They're Nearly, I'd say, 90-plus percent of leaks are controlled leaks, strategic leaks. Um, and so... You know, I don't have any proof of this. This is just my assumption. But Edcom's gone. You know, why don't we leak this out and and through the press, we're we're basically signalling to the Chinese that we're still, you know, we're, we're still sort of fighting the good fight on this one. So please be nice to us. Yeah. And it just um, just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. It does. Yeah. It's it's a it's a bizarre situation to have. You know, because I can't imagine there's uh, a lot of love among Ericsson executives, really, for, for Huawei. You know, if we see all the accusations, none of which have been proven, should point out. They're all allegations. Yeah. But, you know, this is a company over the years that has overtaken Ericsson in Europe to become the main mobile infrastructure player. Yeah. It's done it 
according to its harshest critics, by massively undercutting, you know, these uh, Western Western rivals on cost, you know, using using kind of Chinese government generosity to do that. Um, and you know various other sort of unfair tactics dating. Yeah, because we know they get incredibly favourable credit terms off Chinese banks. Exactly. You know, not not to mention all the stuff about intellectual property infringement that dates back, you know, to sort of the early years of the millennium when when Cisco is involved in disputes with it. There must be a, mm. lot, a lot of you know. You, I mean, we know this because we go to trade fairs and we talk to these people. But we know there's not there's not a lot a lot of love for Huawei among Western vendors. Uh, and yet, yeah. no, but that could just be pure resentment of their success i'm sure um, some of it is resentment yeah, yeah. she's got this but either way either way to have lobbying him. for huawei yeah yes exactly yeah uh so yeah that's funny and and i've got some sympathy for him being in that awkward position oh totally um what i what the other thing i speculate about is he could just shut up yeah. you know he could just say well at least he's not coming out and being triumphalist and going ha suck on that huawei yeah. he could just shut up the fact that he doesn't shut up makes me wonder how much political pressure he's getting from China directly. And them going, oi, yeah, boy, yeah. you're, you're yeah. being a bit quiet, mate. You know, we've, we've done you a favour. We haven't banned you from the country. How about you How about you get involved? That's what I wonder. And, yeah, I wouldn't want to be in this I'm, position. I mean, that- I wonder with, um, you know, with the Chinese position on this, and if you look at, you know, what China could do in response, um, you know, how concerned are they perhaps? I mean... You know, on the list of things that have happened to Huawei, uh, being locked out of the Swedish market is probably not the worst thing of all, is it? Um, I mean, they'd be obviously be much more concerned about access to comp- critical components and things that are going to yeah. th- the, the, the future of the business. A relatively small market like Sweden is not, you know, it's not the end of the world if it's a market they can't access. And at the same time, I kind of think, well, you know, the... the they don't. They don't necessarily want to shut all competition out of their own market. I mean, the, the Chinese operators are state-owned, and they're driven heavily to use uh, yeah. Huawei and ZTE. But they like. I think they like to have Western vendors in the mix, just to kind of keep the local producers on their toes, kind of thing. Well, and also to counter the narrative that they're t- utterly protectionist, as well as that. So I don't. Yeah. Uh, you kind of wonder how much risk there is to Ericsson anyway. But like you say, maybe he's heard something. Maybe somebody's lent on him. I always feel that if. If China is going to retaliate uh, to, you know, Western-style sanctions and moves that are happening in Europe, they'll probably do it in maybe not even a telecom way at all. Perhaps you know, maybe they'll, they'll maybe look to other other industries or other ways where they have a lot more muscle to kind of cause pain. And yeah, you know, but, the only um, the other the only other awkward thing for Ekholm about the Swedish situation is the way in which they went about their ban in the first place. They seem to do it in a way that left them quite legally exposed. Yeah. And and Huawei, which presumably has some fairly sharp-suited lawyers, uh, sort of jumped on that almost straight away. So other people have gone, you know, like the UK, we just went, yeah, security, and then, then we went the full ban, we went, yeah, more security because of this new thing. Whereas Sweden just seemed to make it conditional on this auction. I don't think anyone else has attached it to an auction in the way they did. I yeah, think well, they I- just left left themselves more exposed to legal challenge than other places. Maybe. I mean, I, I never really understand why um, a, a legal challenge has happened in in this instance and perhaps it's not in, in others like the UK you know, or, or France. But I, I, did, I remember looking at the Swedish <laughs> statement and, and not the nitty-gritty of it, but uh, the, the, just the basic press release. And it was very 
undetailed, I guess. <coughs> it almost literally just said, anybody who gets Spectrum at this auction can't use Huawei. I yeah, think it was end of. As blunt as that. Yeah, with no, yeah. no kind of justification, no sort of... Whereas you look at the UK, I remember we both went to all the UK stuff that came out of the NCSC when it when it first did, you know, January this time last year. And it was all pages and pages of stuff about... Yeah, they dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Yeah, yeah. so I don't know, but maybe maybe they just haven't been as thorough as they should, the Swedes. They're just... Okay. Oi, we don't like Huawei, but... Uh, all right, well, since you mentioned the UK, that gives me a, a segue onto, onto our next thing, which is talking about the UK's sort of fibre rollout. Yeah. Um, now... So we had back in, I think, June 2019, before Bojo was even, uh, Boris Johnson, that is, was even um, leader of the Conservative Party, let alone Prime Minister. Um, He came up with this thing. I I think Theresa May, the previous Prime Minister's target for full fibre rollout was 2033. And he went, well, that's nowhere near ambitious enough. How about 2025? (laughs) Let's do that, yeah. Pretty good. Uh, it's better than your Cockney one. <laughs> That's just for Xi Jinping. <laughs> um, yes, yes, a bit of bit of British sinew will get the job done. Roll our sleeves up, and all these sort of silly things that he says. And you know, at a time, I think Jamie covered a lot of them. And Jamie was 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 fairly um, sort of cutting about it. It's just it's just bollocks. He just pulled a pulled a date out of his ass. Yeah. Um, and there was, you know, when you actually looked at, if you extrapolated the, the curves of, you know, current rollout trends, it was just, it was clearly impossible to achieve unless there was a seismic change, the kind of inward investment the Chinese do, for example. Yeah. Um, and then by um, last autumn, he went, oh, all right, then we'll go for 85%. 85% gigabit capable. So there were all these sort of hedging terms. Which in itself now, is, a, is a downgrade, isn't it? The gigabit capable is quite different. Yes, as opposed to full fibre. Which is future-proof. FTTH yeah. or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, and yes, well, when something's capable, it reminds me of some of those other hedging terms that you always get with broadband. I remember we a few years ago, the advertising standards finally tried to stamp on all these broadband ads that said up to 40 megabits per second. Yeah. When, of course, what you'd actually get is four megabits per second. And you only get 40 if no one else in the whole world is on the internet. Yeah. And there was a prevailing wind and it and wasn't nip, raining. And you nipped down to the local laboratory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you sort of rubbed the, the cable coming into your house to get it nice and warm and ready. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that up to was clearly a, a, a really irritating marketing sleight of hand. And, and this gig, gigabit capable sounds like a very... Um, yeah. a, a sort of vague term, and anyway, and so uh, you know, I'll announce it and I'll hand it over to you because I think you you uh, looked at this today. I think you said you're in the process of writing it. Up. I'm, I'm sort of looking at it at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So this, uh, so I did write it up, but it's fairly short and sweet, as is, as is my wont. Um, this this parliamentary committee, I think it was, uh, I forget what committee it was. It's to do with it's the public keeping an eye on shit. Public accounts, so yeah, it? which looks at um, it's like a spending watchdog. Well, you take it from there. What, what what did they say? Yeah, I mean, well, they they've basically been quite critical, um, and um, you know, he's. I, don't, I feel a bit of sympathy for Boris at the moment because you know he's 
it's not the easiest of times, obviously, for any government. No. And okay, would you want his job? Would right you want now? his job? You Jesus know, we can Christ. be. Uh, I just get a bit sick of looking at, at Twitter. I think and seeing, you know, anything he does, he picks his nose. He's done it in the wrong way. You yeah. know, nothing, nothing is right. And yeah, clearly there've been mistakes on the whole coronavirus strategy. But you, you can never please everybody. I mean, we're we're probably more skeptical of of lockdown, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll come people. to that. We'll come to that. But, um, you know, we've got our views about that. And you can't, clearly, you can't satisfy everyone. And no. on the on the broadband front, they, I mean, the the, the PAC kind of came along and, and said that, you know, they were worried um, in, for, about a number of things. One is that the, um, you know, one is that this uh, uh, rural commitment is, you know, they're kind of worried that, you know, rural areas might end up getting neglected, actually, and, and, and end up with a lack of, of broadband alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say he's not he's not removed some of the obstacles to fibre build out that were, you know, that were talked about, you know, like high taxes and cumbersome planning regulations. And then they came out with this blanket statement that, you know, this promise of gigabit for all by 2025 has, has proven unachievable. You know, as though this is some great realization they've just had yeah. last few weeks. No shit, Sherlock. And it's and it's all a bit stupid, I think. I mean, you know, I remember when he wrote his article for the Telegraph announcing this sort of ambition to have gigabit everywhere by 2025. And Jamie, Jamie you know, who's not with us anymore, but as you say, covered this quite a lot. And I were at a, a broad. Now, do you know it cracks me up? Sorry to butt in. Yeah, go on. It's funny how people say not with us anymore when someone leaves a company. Oh, sounds yeah, like that sounds died. bad. You know, all right, so he's, he's at Vodafone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Jamie, Jamie's now he at Vodafone. Us, and I, yeah, yeah, we're um, writing about, we were actually at a broadband conference in London with uh, quite a few sort of prominent speakers and, you know, stakeholders, people like Clive Selly, you know, CEO of um, OpenReach. And we were going around and asking people's opinion on this. And, and people didn't really want to go on the record saying it because they suspected he's going to come in and be prime minister and you don't want to laugh at his ideas. But nobody really took it very seriously. No one, yeah. ever, no one ever in the industry thought we were going to have gigabit for everybody by 2025. Exactly. But at the same time, I think what the point that a lot of people made to me was that there's nothing wrong with aiming high. Yeah? If you have something like a really lofty ambition and maybe you get to – 60% or 70% by that day, then that's not a bad achievement. I mean, you've got to remember the UK is massively behind some of the leading European nations. Yeah, on, like Spain, on, for example. Yeah. Uh, now, I looked at the stats just before I started writing my article, and when Boris Johnson came in, um, full fibre networks, so stuff that goes right up to the doorway or whatever, the building, were available to about 8%, I think, of, of UK homes, which is pretty bad. We were right at the bottom of rankings and we were, you know, you look at these FTTH Council Europe presentations, they were always like, we're a lagger, we're not improving. At the moment, it's 18%. So that's an increase of 10%. More than double. Yep. In 18 months, including 10 months of a pandemic, right? Yeah. Uh, BT Openreach is on course to hit... Uh, four and a half million premises by March this year. I spoke to them this week, actually. I spoke to Peter Bell, who's the CTO, and asked him what the figure is at the moment. Four million. So they're completely on track. Uh, okay. They're likely Good to get pricing, all the pricing certainty that they've asked for, which is controversial a little bit. I know, you know, that opens up questions about fair competition, but they've always said they want that for this commitment to deliver broadband to 20 million homes by the mid-2020s. Now, if they did that, that's 70% of homes covered with gigabit broadband you know and the market the infrastructure market is more competitive than it's ever been you've got virgin media investing you've got city fiber with a big big ambitions for the mid 2020s as well not to mention all these smaller companies like hyperoptic gigaclear 
So and, and Vodafone. Yeah, Vodafone. Now at the same time, so I don't think there's anything wrong with this with what what's happening actually in the UK's broadband sector. You know, and, and the, the other thing you've got to you've got to consider is that you can you can build this stuff out, but are people actually going to use it? Do people want it anyway? You know, it's all very well saying we need to have gigabit everywhere. You, you look at you look at BT's results for last September. And OpenReach was showing about three and a half million homes covered at that stage. Only 655,000 of those lines are actually being used in September. So a lot of people just don't see a need for, and it's not because it's not that affordable. It's only a little bit more. All these prices are very, very... That's still odd, though. That's still odd that what what we're saying, like like a fifth or a sixth of those people who can actually take it. Yeah. The take up rate is not very... Weird. And I mean, there might be all sorts of reasons for that. You know, home pass is not the same necessarily as a home connected. You know, there might be some service issues. There might be, you know, maybe it is just that people don't want to spend the extra few pounds. But whatever it is, if there was real pent up demand and an urgent need, yes. gigabit speed service. Now, this is the thing I have an issue with. There seems to be this obsession with gigabit for all, just for itself. Yeah. Like, why do we want to have gigabit for all? And why are we spending money? to subsidise gigabit rollout, which is what this plan's all about. There's quite a big chunk of public sector money, I think about $5 billion, that's been assigned for... Like we've got lots of spare cash to, to re- chuck around. Exactly. At a time like now, that's been assigned for hard-to-reach areas. Why do why do hard-to-reach areas need a gigabit speed connection? I'm working at home at the moment. I mean, I, I make the point that in Slovakia, which is where my wife's from, and we went we went there for the Christmas period... I filed a couple of... This is up in the Tatras Mountains out in the middle of nowhere. I had no fixed line connection at all. Tetris Mountains? Tatras Mountains. Oh, just imagining... It's part of the Carpathian mountain range, actually. Part of the Carpathian mountain range, which Dracula made famous, of course. Ah, excellent. But but up in, up in the middle of nowhere, with not a decent fixed line broadband connection, I was able to check news stories, uh, upload things that I was writing to the content management system and send emails over by tethering 4G to my laptop. You don't need yeah. a gigabit speed connection to order food on a cardo. Why are we subsidising rich cottage owners in the countryside? Yeah, Netflix on high definition. You know, I don't, I don't get this obsession with having a gigabit speed connection for everybody. And yeah. I think if we, I completely agree. Why would? Yeah, go on. So while while you were talking, I did a speed test using the Ookla speed test on what I've got, and I'm using EE broadband, and I've got download of thirty four point two five megabits per second. Yeah, which is which is way off gigabit, and you can probably just do, a bit. Yeah, yeah. So and you can, we're on a Zoom a call now. Yeah, yeah, I can do most of the stuff I want to do. We're on the Zoom call. There isn't buffering. No, so, I, so why I, do we want to spend five billion on providing peak district, you know, rich companies with gigabit speed connections so they can sit at home and watch Netflix? Because what else yeah, are they going to do with it? Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better to spend that money on some like fixed wireless access or something like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the main thing the government can do in this area is actually just keep out of the way. I mean, you know, the, the Ofcom's figures at the moment for super fast, and now super fast to them means 30 megabits per second. And I'm not sure how... Um, I've got super fast then. Super fast. But they, they, I think they're I think they're overestimating this a bit. And I'm not sure this is, all these services would that be that reliable. But they, they're saying about 96% of UK homes now have super fast services, which includes things like 4G, yeah? 
because because in some areas you might be able to get quite a high speed connection on your yeah. on your four G phone. So, but that's a, that's a huge amount of premises that are covered for basic needs that you would need during a pandemic. You know, with the, being able to work from home, being able to you know get your yeah. children on, online for education, being able to order pizza and groceries. Um, I, I you know there's there's some need for I'm not saying there's no need for public subsidy to to serve some of these communities with a basic broadband connection. But I don't see the need to spend billions on gigabit, and I think the best. Exactly. No, I, th- I think we agree. You could divert that money onto something that, if ninety-five percent of the country is already got acceptable broadband, spend the money on getting fixed wireless access or something, something else that's viable yeah. to the remaining five percent. Then you hit your hundred percent, and everyone could shut up. Yeah, and and focus your energy actually on the where I think the public accounts committee probably got it right is that there needs to be more to do because this is something you hear the operators say quite a lot as well. Actually, is fiber taxis you know and planning regulations and getting landowner permissions for things and trying to get things rolled out here all of that's a real nightmare if you talk to anybody who's involved in this stuff at open reach or you know the other company they all complain about that issue that's that's the thing they all get upset about you know it's the funding side of it keep you know make the regulatory environment really sort of smooth and, and this permission yeah. process as smooth as possible and get out of the way and let the private sector do what it's shown it can do, because it's actually done a bloody good job over the last... Well, okay, so I completely agree with you, and we also know why they don't get out of the way, because for some reason this has become politicised. And we've got... And and one of the main reasons it's become politicised is because of Bojo, Bojo deciding to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, and, he, years, and he was, it was, a, ma- it was a rookie error to do that, actually. It was, and now it's, a, as I put in my piece, a millstone around his neck. Because what happened was, I suspect he's sitting at home one day, has an outage or something, and he's looking at the pizza wheel of doom, as he put it, or whatever, and not been able to do it. And he thought, hang on a minute, Spain's got 96% fibre run yeah, because he'd read some articles. Let's get on it. Decided, David Cameron yeah. did that a few years ago. He couldn't check the footy scores while he's in Norfolk Exactly, exactly. So he so, made it a thing. It's like, is, yeah. is this how you make policy? I know, and, and and you could sense that when he wrote that article, he was a bit miffed that, that he'd had a bad broadband day, and he's gone, yeah. he's gone and sort of dug this situation for him. When, when in actual fact, you know, we're, we're, we're way behind Spain and Portugal, no doubt, but that's nothing to do with Boris Johnson. That's that's a legacy of things that have happened long before he came to power, and the improvement that's happened while he's been in power, and we've had a pandemic on for, for 10 months, has been massive. Yeah. Go from 8% to 18% of full fibre, you know, can I say one other quick thing about the politicization of this stuff? This week, so so we've had this lockdown. In fact, this might once we've done this, it might lead us on to a sort of more general current affairsy stuff. We've had this lockdown three, um, which I'm which I'm saying is I'm characterizing. Is it three? As, I thought it was two. No, we had the, we had the first main one, and then we had about a two to four week one. I think in November, it was one of those sort of circuit breakers oh and then we never came out of it really anyway broke no fucking circuits at all um so it's lockdown three i'm i'm calling it club alang i've decided these lockdowns are now basically rocky sequels (laughs) so we've had the two (laughs) apollo creed lockdowns this is club alang we'll have a (laughs) ivan drago sometime in the spring yeah um and uh and you know a fascinating thing about about being a journalist is just watching how narratives develop and how journalistic consensus develops because journalists, what few journalists are left tend to be real pack hunters. They see one angle and everyone else jumps on it. They're all quite opportunistic. Um, 
and I don't necessarily blame them for it. There's a lot of journalists who are being asked to turn out a lot of stories and they just don't have time to do their own original research. So it's not just the journalist's fault, it's the whole whole industry. But um, And so this week, actually, it was catalyzed by a bit of opportunism by Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, the opposition, going, we've got this lockdown, but loads of kids still can't access laptops, so they can't do remote learning. Um, and I thought, I th- and, and he goes, and then, so he put pressure on mobile operators to make mobile data free. Um, and I thought two things about it. Firstly, I was skeptical about how many people can't get onto the internet at all. There's some Ofcom data flying around. Some people quote some pretty big, uh, numbers like 10% of the population, but the Ofcom data I've seen is less than that. Still higher than I thought, actually. I'm, I'm still surprised how many people don't have an internet connection i just thought jesus christ it just seems impossible in this well especially now yeah last year i was yeah before that maybe not but you would have thought anyway you know the data's flying around there are some so i'll concede that i i doubt it's loads but i also thought why is he going on about mobile data surely the most important thing to do especially when you're locked down is just to have a broadband connection so what we should be addressing is those people who for whatever reason don't even have 20 quid a month or whatever, or, or possibly even less to to drop on entry-level broadband. But, you know, I'd be surprised. I, you know, they must have, you know, they'll have a TV, and most TVs are internet-connected. Anyway, who knows? I, I don't know the hard data. But I yeah. just thought he was a bit misguided in that way. But I was clearly in a minority because um, everyone's jumped on that and just gone, you know, think of these poor kids who can't just learn. And, and don't get me wrong. Any kids who are locked down at home and can't do distance learning definitely need help. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Um, so I thought that was an interesting further politicization of telecoms. And then, you know, one other little dig, I've got to say, I already put it in a piece. So a few operators stepped up to the plate. So Starmer said this thing, Guardian jumped on it. Everyone else went, yeah, what are you going to do, you greedy bastard mobile operators not caring about poor children? So, of course, the mobile operators went, oh, shit, and immediately started offering all this stuff. And there's a sort of government scheme that helps them identify um, which kids need extra help. And that's good. I'm pleased they did all that. But then they all issued press releases about it. Now, my issue, again, as a journalist, I'm sceptical about companies ever acting in a moral way at all, ever. Yeah. Um. I just don't think it's possible for people within the company, even the CEO, to have a strong moral conscience. But the company on the whole, as a corporate entity, doesn't have a moral compass. It's there if it's a public company to serve its shareholders, if it's a private company to seek growth, whatever. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and we get CSR, corporate social responsibility, but that's a box ticking exercise so that they can say that they're good and, you know, and they can wave rainbow flags every now and then and hug a few trees and, and tick all these boxes. Yeah, and there's been a lot um, going on recently as well. Yes, and it will just keep going because they're all shit scared of Twitter and being called out by a few activists on Twitter. It's yeah. ridiculous how held to ransom so many people are by by a few um, sort of vocal activist types. And so when they issue a press release going, look, look how nice we've been, look how altruistic we've been, it's like, well... Really, really being altruistic, you wouldn't issue a press release about it, would you? Yeah, you'd just get on with it. You wouldn't then seek to to gain reputational capital on the back of it. 
So that's just my little dig there, and it's probably unpopular. And most people are like, Scott, you know, why can't you just accept it and good things happen and not look the gift horse in the mouth? But it's kind of my job, isn't it? No, companies don't do good things, as you say. They only do things that ultimately are in their own interests. So, um, yeah, yeah. I've, might, have good, might have good repercussions. but uh, Yeah, if, if good things come of it yeah. and it's a win-win, then great. But yeah. what I'm not going to do is treat him like, like some kind of philanthropist organisation, that's all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think we've been talking quite a while. So we'll we'll have our sort of final sweep up of what's been going on in the world. So touching on what we were just covering with that final segment, the whole lockdown thing. So I know you and I again, we seem to be going against popular consensus, and that we're quite sceptical about the need for these continuing lockdowns. Now, my point of view yeah. is, I mean, I think it's clear that this is probably. You know, I've got I've got some mates whose Christmas were ruined by coronavirus, um, and and the data definitely seems to be going in the wrong direction. And so it's clear, you know, I'm not going to belittle it. Um, I think I got criticised for referring to it as a cold, and I think I'll, you know, while I was being hyperbolic, I'll I'll concede that that's probably a, a bit of hyperbole too far because it's clearly much more severe than a cold. Um, but I still think that locking down the whole country is wrong on two primary levels. First level is that it this overwhelmingly affects over seventies. So so lock down the over seventies. And we can come into this and, and Pierre, I don't know if he's still listening, but we were arguing the toss of Pierre on this. And he seems he sees a different view on that. And then the second thing is just the the complete lack of discussion about the pros and cons of locking down, i.e. the collateral damage. Uh, that's done by locking down so you know i just i'll, I'll yeah. finish it there is, is that a kind of how I mean, you I, view all yeah this well? I, I just you know i i'm like you I, I don't want to belittle the the illness itself and i and i appreciate that we've now got this variant that's um much more transmissible and um you know and i i, t- I take the point about uh, how risky that can be for some groups and you know I mean, the, the thing for me is that the the real thing that the government's worried about uh, and needs to do is, is to make sure that the NHS is able to cope with the, this. And, yeah, uh, that was always it back in the first lockdown, of, wasn't it? Flatten exactly. the curve and all that. You know, uh, but there's nothing in in the data, you know, that I've looked at to suggest that you know, other than it being more transmissible, it, it's any more of a of a risk to most people than it was, you know, the first time round. Mm. I mean, I mean, we, you know, if you look at the comments that. Um, uh, Witty is, is his name. Is it, is it Professor Witty has come out? Yeah. With he seems to think at the moment that about two percent of the English population or British population, or whatever, has has coronavirus. Um, and you know, you look at hospitalizations. I think there's only about thirty thousand people in hospital now. As an as an actual number, that's high. I know that's enough to put a lot of pressure on the NHS. But as a percentage of people who've got the disease, if he's right with his estimate, it's only about two and a half percent. You know. Um, so most people just sweat it out at home, like when well, they get it the flu seems or that whatever. way. I mean, I, I'm surprised because I this is what I don't understand. I, I I seem to remember last year being told that this is quite a serious illness. Now, by serious illness, I thought, well, that must mean serious illness means you have to go to hospital to, to be looked at. For you just can't breathe. Well, if it's a fifth of people, then why have we only got thirty thousand people in hospital mm. and two percent of the population's got it? And the other thing is, you look at the. You look at the ONS data for, for fatalities, which I think is sort of reflective of hospitalizations as well to some extent. But 
you know, the, the week before Christmas, which is the last one I looked at, it's not even over 70s. 63% of fatalities are people aged over 80. So, you know, all you'd have to do to take pressure off the NHS is actually ask people who are over the age of 80 to do what they've already asked people who are in vulnerable mm. to do anyway and, and shield, you know. And, and now I know there's one view that if we're asking, you know, 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds to shield, then it's not fair that we allow other people mm. to out and, and go about their merry ways. But I'm not really sure I get the logic of that. I mean, it's... No, you know, you've already asked vulnerable groups to shield for, for one thing. So you've already set a precedent for, for treating one section of the population differently from the rest. And, and it's in the interests of everybody for us to try and get back to normal and to keep the economy going. It's not going to it's not going to help any yes. year olds and 90 year olds if we if we face some kind of economic collapse in the future. Yeah? So um, I totally. I, and the, the only the only nuance to that. So we've had you know, we've had uh, colleagues and. and yeah, Pierre, Pierre's not um, speaking up, so I'm going to I'm going to characterise his argument. No, there we no, are. He's okay, just unmiked yeah. himself. Pierre, whoa, whoa, what whoa. was your what was your pushback on the uh, on what or Ian was just talking about that we were chatting about earlier in the week? Hmm. No, I mean, at the beginning, I was like, I hear a lot of complaining, but I don't hear any solutions offered. And then yeah. you said <laughs> to lock basically lock up all the over seventies. And over eighties, I think would would, would uh, yeah, be would 80s. need to do in over seventies actually. I don't think. In a perfect world or totalitarian world, yes, do that. That would be great. And you said, why can't we ask them? We did ask, and asking doesn't do anything. Asking them, you know, there there's still going to be loads of them who are like, thanks, but no thanks. Mm. Especially when they're that old, they don't. They, who, who? I mean, most of the people who think this is a conspiracy, I bet they're old actually. I don't. I don't <laughs> think young people think it's a conspiracy, and then, so my point in the chat that we had two days ago was the only, sadly, the only choice is to lock, to close down all places for people to go, so they have no options but to stay at home because there's nowhere to go. And so my it's my my thoughts but... on on you saying that, Pierre. Certainly, the way it's been presented has been th the fact that places are locked down is a byproduct of people not being able to leave the house, locking down places to keep people from temptation hasn't been the primary method. And, and in this lockdown, that you can still go to the supermarket and all that sort of thing. But, you know, back to your, your point about um, it being totalitarian to sort of force them to stay in. Well, they're kind of doing that to everyone. Um, so that that's where that's where I push back on that thing. though. It's, well, it's, it's not it's not well, that indirect right because because i mean there was a story that i put up on facebook which I, I noticed scott saw just before we came on about two poor 20 year old women in derbyshire the derbyshire police seem to be absolutely awful right yeah they've obviously been reading their gestapo handbooks uh <laughs> christmas but they, 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 these these were the arseholes who were sending drones up during the first lockdown around the peak the dog walkers and and filming dog walkers and saying and putting them putting their pictures up on social media and they'd, they'd, these two women had apparently driven five miles down the road from where they lived to go for a walk in uh, around a lake or something, and taken a cup of coffee with them in a, in a you know, in a, in a kind of flask. And there were police waiting there for them. And then they got out of the car, and the police were like, "What are you doing? You, you, we're going to fine you. You've broken restrictions. Five miles is not local, and and what you're carrying counts as a picnic." You know, I mean, that's that's pretty draconian. And if you know, if they're doing things like that to the entire population anyway, then and Scott's point's right, isn't it? We're all kind of we all kind of face that that sort of reality, unfortunately, anyway, at the moment. But the, the 
the f there's a fact is that when we did it the first time, like the real one, you know, last year, it worked. It did go down. Then we tried other methods and it didn't. Well, it worked in terms of driving it down, but it didn't work in terms of, 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 of not hammering businesses, of not having an impact on children's education, of not delaying of, course, yeah, yeah. of not causing mental health problems, of not, you know, all these other things, which we haven't even seen the beginning of yet, because you miss a million cancer, breast cancer screenings in one year, three years time, you're going to have a big spike in, you know, in fatalities in that area. I'm sure you will. Yeah, but if, oh, if we so let this thing, if we if we open, then the hospitals will be run over anyway, so they won't be able to do anything else anyway, right? But that's but that's why to prevent, that's the one thing they need to do is to prevent the hospitals from being overrun, which is why I think you target, you know, the, the hospital pressure could be addressed immediately by just trying to address vulnerable groups, which they've already done anyway. They've asked the vulnerable groups to shield. Ask the 80s and ask the 80 and 90 year olds to shield as well. Yeah, and again, my point is asking is not going to do anything, sadly. Okay, well, let's let's uh, sort of wrap it up. But I mean, I think that's indicative of some of the discussions we're having. And what I think is interesting about it all, and I think we've all been good boys. Like I'm on, I'm on quarantine because I got back from the Canary Islands and we're all being good, the whole family's staying in. But it does yield, I think, really interesting conversations such as this one. As to what the what the limits of 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 uh, state interference in individuals' life should be, and what should precipitate it. Obviously, we've decided that this is a big enough deal that we're going to curtail civil liberties to an extent that I don't think has happened since the Second World War. And I've had I've had conversations with people where they go, "Well, yeah, it's that severe that we got to do it." But I also think it's perfectly valid to push back and go, "Well, I think it's an overreaction." But the funny thing is how um, how upset some people get when you just push back a little bit on the consensus. Well, I think I think that's typical of what we were talking about earlier with with you know polarization of opinion these days, and you're either one thing or the other. And yeah. Just as with Brexit, I, I find this issue is quite similar. You look at social media, and if you suggest to some people for one minute that you ease restrictions, they're like, "Oh, you're." You're, you're a murderer, you know, you're a, you don't care about people's lives. And they can't, they can't bring themselves to see the other side of the argument at all. And it's clear that locking down now will cost lives in the future. You just don't see the deaths at the moment. But they can't bring themselves to see that because they're so wedded oh, yeah. their opinion. Um, yeah. No, my point is that it is. No, I'm not, I'm not, Pierre, I'm not, I'm not putting on... you in, I'm not putting you in that category, Pierre, by the way. No, 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 I know. I'm just, because I was thinking as you, as you were talking, like it, it is an overreaction, but it's, to me, it's, it's sadly, it's an overreaction that's brought on because of the lowest common denominator. I mean, I know, Scott, you think it's wrong to think of the people as dumb, but. Uh, well, uh, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, of that anyway and you know there's sort of certain guardian easter types of and i'm not saying you are one who seem to constantly view the world as us enlightened few versus the the sort of ill-educated rabble and i'm not a big fan of people who who have that point of view but it, it, it's just a much simpler thing about individual liberty for me uh at, at what's at what stage is it all right for the collective to impose its will on the individual? These are the sorts of conversations they should be having more in the States. But I think we're running out of time, so we won't get into the US stuff, which is probably just as well, as I've already had indications from <laughs> certain certain US uh, people I know that, that you, can't, you can't state an opinion on that without everyone having a little palpitation. 
Um, but, you know, this is what the US has founded on. It's supposed to be about liberty. That's slipping back in, in that way. And I'm just getting the impression in these unnuanced times, the narrative, the prevailing narrative seems to favor uh, control of the individual rather than letting individuals make decisions of their own. And back to your point about the old people, Pierre, if an eight-year-old wants to go out and risk their life, why shouldn't they? Yeah, but then once they get then, sick, you yeah, know, that's, you, that's the problem. I suppose. Them, oh, you have to yeah. stay home now. You you made your choice. No, they'll still go to the hospital and take pick up, you know, take a bed space. I mean, all right. So then, so then we get the point where we where we mandate people's behaviour in order to not be a burden on the NHS. And then so you're going to start saying something. people can't be yeah. fat, and then I'll really start pushing back. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like they should make people sign. You know, if you you can go outside, do anything you want, but uh, we're going to somehow tag you then you'll be refused to be treated for coronavirus. You you could be accepted for anything yeah, else, but not for it's coronavirus. slippery slope as well, mate. But then exactly. you're getting to health passports but, and stuff. Totalitarian again. I mean, I think the mm. UK has tried to be more, um, you know, t- to remain more libertarian, I suppose, about a lot of this than, than other European countries have, hasn't it? And I, I know from going to, you know, Slovakia over the Christmas period that you're, you know, you some of the restrictions there are things that we haven't introduced here. We haven't gone quite as far, you know, wearing face masks outdoors all the time, for instance, is something people seem to seem to be doing there. And I know from uh, relatives in France that it's, you know, that they've gone, they've gone much, much further in terms of saying what you can and can't do and trying to police it in quite an aggressive way. You know, you've got to have a piece of paper each day that says you go into the shops, you know, you can't just go outdoors to, to wander around the block without, the risk that some officer comes along and finds you. So, but the result is that there's way less cases, and the country is not as locked down as us at all. Actually, in France, you can still go outside. But it, no, but it has been in the past, hasn't it? Whenever they have a lockdown, they're much, much more sort of uh, draconian about it than than we ever mm. in the UK. And they, and it's not just France. I think they have been in Italy and Spain as well when they've, you know, when they've imposed restrictions. They've really kind of gone to you know, gone to the limit with it in terms of... Uh, oh, Italy, yeah. Italy, you couldn't be outside. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, well you, you could wear a mask France. outside in Spain. Yeah. Mm. It's just weird. It's annoying. You know, it was annoying while I was on holiday to have to wear a mask while I'm walking down the street when I'm nowhere near anyone. Um, Same in Slovakia. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but the anyway. annoying thing is that there's no... I mean, I, I, I feel there's no clear cut, you know. I don't have an answer to make it better. You know, there's no clear... Uh, no, well, the, oh, the we problem is A, B, and, Z, and C, and oh, it will be better. I don't think. Well, the problem is a public right policy. People forget this. Public policy in the UK has been what they call suppression until there's a, a full vaccine program. That's been public mm. policy for a while. So it's been inevitable that we're going to have a sequence of lockdowns until there's a vaccine rollout, and that's fine. You know, you, you could argue that we're at the beginning of the end there. But two things concern me about that stipulation. What is the vaccine threshold after which everyone's going to be allowed to get on with their lives? Is it just 90% of over 70s or is it 60% of the entire population, including children or what? Um, And then the second thing is, is the prospect of things like health passports, whereby you will have civil liberties curtailed in perpetuity unless you can prove that you yourself have been vaccinated Those which, are which spain has already said it's going to issue yeah spain has yeah. already announced plans for a health passport but of course we're not going to use them we just want to issue them or some, some ridiculous yeah we just want we just want to know but it, we just want to know but don't worry i mean yeah it's yeah it's worrying i mean i i think on the on the on the first point i think the 
I don't know for certain because it hasn't happened and the government's plans change all the time. But I'm pretty sure Johnson was saying recently that he hopes by the time we get everybody over 70 and uh, vulnerable groups vaccinated in the aim sort of mid-February, I think, but probably more likely early March, and even then it could slip. But once that's done, then then he was saying we, we should see easing of restrictions. But I don't know what easing of restrictions mean. I mean, I, I personally think if you get to the point where everybody over 70 and anybody who's in a vulnerable group is vaccinated, I don't see why you'd have to have any... What's the problem? At all, ...to be quite honest with you. Because yeah, me too. Talking about a caseload, you look at deaths, again, look, going back to Ernest's stats, deaths under 50 in the week up to Christmas when there was 3,000, I think, deaths. There were 40 of people under under 50. You know, it's, a, it's, it's horrible, obviously, for people who are in that situation. And I suspect a lot of them probably have underlying health conditions. So hopefully those will be people that will be vaccinated as well and the numbers will be even smaller. But we can't just shut down a country because a, a small number of people are are suffering, you know, in a, you know, adverse conditions from a virus. I mean, it sets a weird precedent, I think, for how you tackle future viruses. You know, like a bad flu season can kill 20,000 people. Do we do we say that's too much to contemplate in the future? We have to have similar Indeed. restrictions. Uh, Indeed. So there's lots of questions about how we treat set. things. Yeah. But I would hope, certainly, that once we have everybody over 70 and vulnerable groups, I don't see why there should be any restrictions at all at that point, to be quite honest. Yes, I agree. Uh, okay, unless you've got any last stuff you want to say, Pierre, we should probably wrap it up there. I think we're well over an hour. No, I just think I have uh, kind of high hopes for, you know, this. Uh, once spring starts coming, you know, there'll be the, the season, which will help a little bit, the sun and being outdoor. Yeah, well, it certainly did last yeah, year. Yeah. Those two Definitely. things together, hopefully, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 then we'll see. But don't forget, even even last summer there were still some restrictions, uh, mm. and so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It I mean, there's like some they weren't. <laughs> compared they to seemed now. like they weren't. Yeah, it did seem like they weren't. Yeah. Well, compared to now, but yeah. not yeah. compared to two I, years. I forgot ago. what these were. Yeah. Well, I think quite, we had no concerts and no stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I'd, I'd, I couldn't, I'd take I couldn't going to download. I'd happily go into yeah. with a face mask and not complain about having to wear one at the moment. I know. So, so, whereas two years ago, if someone told you to wear a face mask, you would have told them to shove it up their ass. Yeah. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so place to put it. Let's see. I've seen other people <laughs> write analytical stuff. Yes, he's a good place to end it, <laughs> saying that we won't be back to normal till 2022. So, there's a cheery note to end it on. Uh, oh, on this oh, cold oh. January, stuck in the house. But anyway, we're still cheerful. Look at us smiling. Bless us. <laughs> So uh, so we'll wrap it up there. Thanks a lot, guys. And yeah, expect this format for the foreseeable future, everyone. Thanks a lot for listening. Make sure you join us for the next one. Yeah, there we cool. Go.